From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncover contradictions at every turn. How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with the NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. The Rewatchables is part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Bill Simmons. I apologize for my audio fiasco on Santa Must Fire. I am having audio fiascos left and right. We had to use the Zoom audio for the last podcast. This time around, my levels are good. I, this is the second time we have tried to start recording. I'm actually recording this time around. I'm with Chris Ryan and Sean Fennessy. You guys are so money, you don't even know it. Swingers, coming up next. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping that's it happen. I don't want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie. You're a bad man. You're a bad man. You're a bad man. In the city of Los Angeles, where everyone is a player. What do you guys do? Oh, I'm a producer. Mike can't even get a seat on the bench. Where do I know you from? You ever been to the Ha Ha Hole on, a, on Pico? Oh, you're, you're a comedian. But now his closest friends are getting him back into the swing of things. Vegas, baby! Vegas! How you ladies doing this evening? What do you drive? Uh, Cavalier. <laughs> it's a nice touch. So how long do I wait to call? Two days is like industry standard. Well, how long are you guys going to wait to call your babies? Six, Six days. days. Miramax presents Swingers. Wow! Get a nightlife. All right. This movie came out 24 years ago. It is an indie movie icon. It is one of the great LA movies ever. And it is aged like a beautiful bottle of red wine. Sean Fennessy, your single favorite thing about this movie. Well, I was thinking about it in relationship to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I talked a lot about how much I love the character of Cameron. And this movie is like if Cameron was the star of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mikey is the Cameron to Trent's Ferris. And it's fun to watch them flip roles here. It's fun to see this sort of a movie from this guy's perspective. And it's part of why it makes it such an amazing movie about friendship. Does that make Sue Sloan Peterson? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, well, I don't, it's, it, it's a question of whether Heather Graham is Sloan Peterson if you subscribe to the Cameron was also in love with Sloan theory, you know? Chris, what about you? Yeah, it's just like, what if you and your friends mattered? Like, what if you and your friends mattered enough to make a movie about them? And this movie, while it became a huge success, I think, on on home video and also on DVD and, and cable, I still think of it as this like, hey, me and me and my friends are going to scrape together whatever money we can find 
guerrilla shoot this thing that's about our lives and just see if anybody bites. And it just so happened that they had like three generational talents involved in it in Doug Live and Vince Vaughn and John Favreau. And yeah, I just uh, I just think of it as one of the ultimate hangout movies. It's a true indie movie because we had other indie movies. I think like Pulp Fiction is considered an indie movie and it's not really. It has major stars in it and it had enough money to get going. This movie is like, you know, they're telling Favreau to open the fridge because they can get light from the fridge and that will help the light. They're filming in bars, not even telling people in the bars they're filming there. And they're throwing parties, not telling people at the party they're going to film scenes. And it's a true indie in every sense. Everything about how this movie got made is completely organic, lucky in a lot of ways. And then how it hits is huge. And yet it didn't hit. It wasn't successful when it came out. And I think it's a really important point about this movie. Mid-90s, I love movies. I went to see every movie. I didn't see this movie in the theater. I didn't even know about it. And I feel like I was like a nine out of 10 knowing what movies were out, what movies I should go see. I was reading everything and I just kind of missed it. And my friend Jen Morris, like three months after the movie came out, I think it was out in Blockbuster at that point. And she's like, have you seen Swingers yet? And I was like, no, what is it? Is it good? And she's like, you would love it. You have to go rent it. It's your kind of movie. And that was it. And then like a lot of the movies we cover on this in the mid nineties, it hit that cable rewatchable over and over again, it's on. And it is one of the most quotable, rewatchable movies of the last 25 years. I really believe that. Yeah, I think it also, you know, you're, you described it as like a true indie. And it's obviously a Miramax movie, which was sort of the most dominant indie brand at that time. And it's a movie that's in dialogue with, with all these other indie movies. You know, there's that famous sequence where they're talking about Scorsese and mm. how he shot Goodfellas and then Reservoir Dogs and the relationship to that. And then there's this big homage to Reservoir Dogs. And you can tell that Favreau and Lyman looked at what Tarantino did just a few years earlier and were very self-consciously trying to ape that same story of, you know, having this story that is very personal to you, that is very inspired by a lot of other movies, being obsessed with Hollywood, and then finding a way to make that your movie, you know, and, and, and the way that they did it is so amazing. I'm sure we'll talk about it in detail. But like you said, they basically begged, borrowed, stole and hustled through every single moment of this movie. And that's part of what makes it so charming. I think it feels like it's so intimate, you know, it's so close to everyone's face and everyone's experience. It's also really strange because when I saw this movie, I can't remember. I, I very well may have seen it in the theaters in the mid 90s, but I, I certainly remember when seemingly overnight, every single person was telling each other they were money um, and calling each other double down. But when I was young, when I saw it, the idea of staying out until six in the morning was still pretty far-fetched to me. And now, almost 25 years later, I live in the neighborhood where they shot most of it and like drive by these places. And, you know, Vince Vaughn is Vince Vaughn and John Favreau has become one of the biggest blockbuster directors and Doug Lyman is still shooting 74 extra days on a Tom Cruise movie and right. getting it taken away from him and stealing it back and whatever the hell is going on with him. So it's just been kind of a fascinating trajectory for everybody involved, even the audience who I think probably has like, they, when they watch this movie, they probably remember as much about their own life when they saw it as they do, you know, what's happened to the movie since then. And it's, it's not pre-internet because the internet starts taking off in 96, but it's basically pre-internet has a couple things in here 
that were things that I felt like were unique to my friend group at the time, because I'm basically the same age as the guys in this movie. Vegas, we had just started going there the year before. I had never seen that in a movie. Guys going to Vegas, the excitement of going to Vegas, but then the trip is way longer than you think it's going to be. And you're just kind of holding on. Then you see the lights and you get rejuvenated and you go to the casino and you have $300 and that's it. And you have to make that $300 last the whole night. All that stuff, I just never seen in a movie before. Guys playing video games in a movie, like they play NHL 93, which was, you know, this an iconic run of, yeah. I thought it was 93. 94 was the next year. This is, they play 93. This is 93? Yeah. This is the head bleed year. The year after was the, you could go around the net and just do the whole thing. But, um, but I had never seen people play video games in a movie, but my friends and I played that video game all the time. We played hockey video games for three years. We would get in fights like the fights that they got in there. And I think, you know, Apatow, the next decade, I think tapped into some of this stuff too, the dynamics of male bonding. There just weren't a lot of movies like this. I, I Probably less than five where I was like, oh, those guys remind me of me and my friends. It's a really hard thing to pull off. And it's a very low hum of a story. You know, there's hardly really anything going on in this movie. And that it doesn't, it never really matters. You know, you're so, you, you just feel so close to these people. Obviously, like we feel close to these people. For me, I was, you know, 14 when this movie came out and just at the early stages of getting obsessed with how movies were made and what they did and reading magazines about movies that were coming out. And so I, well, I definitely didn't see it in theaters. I had a lot of awareness of it because it was another one of those movies that was sort of like self-mythologizing in real time. Like they sold the Swingers screenplay because the story of Favreau writing that story was such a big part of the origins of that movie. And so like to me, I was aspiring to have male friendships in my 20s where we played video games and went swing dancing when I was a teenager, you know, like right. obviously didn't totally work out that way with swing dancing. But, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, I thought that they like they they brilliantly told their own story while also making something that they loved, which is such a huge part of making a movie a part of history. Bill, I have a question. Yeah. How many bowling shirts did you own? <laughs> Never got into the bowling shirt thing. I got to say, I probably only had one or two. Um, you, didn't that, you didn't have one that had like slick written across, like maybe a gas station jacket, something, not, nothing like that? No, nah, I mean, I was living in Boston when this movie came out. And this whole world that they were in seems so far away from the world I was in. Everything about it, even though the guys had no money, it was the only thing I could identify with. But the way, the the nights that they had and and all getting in their car and driving to different places, like we took cabs in Boston. Like, why are these guys driving everywhere? But you don't know because I'm not from LA. Um, going to these clubs and, you know, going going through the kitchens and things like that. There's just a there's just a vibe, and it's funny because I think I've even talked on my podcast with John Hamm and Adam Scott, people like that. About there's this whole ecosystem in the '90s of young actors who just moved out to LA and had no idea what was going to happen to them, right? And that's every decade, but I think specifically in the mid '90s, there was more people than ever that were out here, and a lot of them knew each other, and a lot of them knew Favreau and Vaughn. Like Adam Scott lived downstairs from John Favreau. Ham was in the middle of all these guys. And it was that that whole kind of generation. They knew these guys. They knew what these guys were trying to do. They were capturing the world that they were in. And then they pulled it off. And I think there was like real happiness crossed with like real jealousy for these guys. It was like, fuck it, man. They this is my story. And they and they just did it. And 
uh, I to me, that's one of the legacies of this movie. It perfectly captures this really weird 90s young actor thing. I think also, Chris, if I'm revealing too much, please let me know. But I mean, Chris and I moved to Los Angeles in 2012. We moved to Los Feliz. We moved out together to do something in an industry that we really looked up to and were excited about and played golf on the par three and Los Feliz and went to a lot of the same restaurants. The Dresden is still open. You can still go there and have a drink. And I, there's something like weirdly aspirational, even though those guys are broke and even though they're kind of like bouncing from party to party, getting rejected by girls all the time. They're always like on the back foot. Every every character in this movie, even though it seems like a very like male dominated masculine thing, it's all about these guys basically embarrassing themselves over and over again. Right. And it's it's like it's weirdly relatable in that way. You know, it's it's aspirational just but the ceiling is very low, which is part of the reason why I think you can look at that version of L.A., which is in some ways so different from the way that it is now, but in other ways exactly the same like some some of those places look exactly the same some of those apartment buildings you know on yeah. franklin look exactly the same it's amazing how close it still feels to our life the 101 still looks the like opening that. credits yeah those pictures in the opening credits a lot of the stuff could be taken now right chris yes yeah absolutely i mean fantasy and i were unlucky in that there was not the we we moved out here exp- for the express purpose because we thought swing was going to come back again <laughs> <laughs> we were like and, you know, we had gotten fitted for suits, you know, like Sean invested in all this hair wax. It was really like a lot of like a lot of sunk cost. But I think we eventually came out the other side. But yeah, I mean, the thing about the actors in L.A., it can seem a little bit masturbatory because you're just like, oh, you guys are just like so obsessed with yourselves. But like there's a really great depiction of like dreams and humiliation. Like these guys all want to be huge stars they want to like they want to be these big you move out here to do that you know if you want to be like a a workman-like actor who pursues art you could stay in in new york and do theater but they all move out here and they're all being absolutely dunked on by life every day like not getting pilots not getting like can't even get a role as goofy at disney world and that is the kind of like that that sort of up and down nature of it those swings are what make it so good yeah, and what's weird is a lot of people have tried to make versions of this movie and most of them have been bad. The young actors trying to break through, it's usually a recipe for disaster. I When I moved out here at the end of 2002, you know, there were just as somebody who loves movies and TV and there, there were just things I wanted to see, right? I knew I wanted to go to the Pepperdine campus because that's where Battle, Battle Network Stars was. <laughs> I knew I wanted to go Cantor's. <laughs> I just had to see it. I knew number I wanted to go to- Number one is Pepperdine. No, no, no. It's not number one. It was just in the mix. I knew I wanted to go Cantor's because I had seen it in so many movies. I was like, I got to go to Cantor's. I got to get a sandwich at Cantor's. I knew I had to go to the Dresden and the Derby because it was like, those are the two places in Swinger. My wife wanted to go too. We went we, within the first two months we were here. We went to both places because we felt like we had to. It's really funny that a movie that didn't even make $5 million- just cracked the short list of I'm moving to LA. I need to go to these places that these guys went to. I think this is one of the great post release success stories we've had because to not even make 5 million bucks and to really go out with, with just a whimper like this movie did, but then have the lifespan that it had after I did a piece. I did that quote gimmick when I was at ESPN, I did like end of the year quotes uh, for the NFL season, I think 02 or 03. And I just used swinger quotes and I just wrote about how 
um, you know, how this had become this iconic rewatchable movie, basically the premise of this podcast. What's interesting, because I reread the piece, there was like a little bit of sadness about how it had turned out for Favreau and Vaughn. <laughs> yeah. And it was yeah. like, this movie's so good, these guys haven't been able to really match it. And especially with Vaughn, who was in a lot of stuff and it had really became a hot property in the late nineties. And he was in clay pigeons and psycho and all these different things. And the Jurassic park and Trent kind of hung over him like a shadow. And it took him, I'm going to say six, seven years to break out of it. And then he, he ends up becoming like one of the leads of the comedy boom that happened. Meanwhile, Favreau who he, he ended up on friends a year later and, then he made a Rocky Marciano movie and it's like what his weight was going way up and down. It's like, what is this guy? And then he becomes one of the most successful directors of this century. So it's funny to go back and read that piece and be like, man, it's too bad. I feel a little bad for these guys. They can't break out of the swinger thing. And now they're both massive successes. Well, they, tr they tried to go back to the well with Made, which is like a pretty fun movie, but obviously doesn't recapture the magic of swingers. But I, I think really what happens is old school happens. You know, old school happens and we're like, oh, this is Vince Vaughn now. This is who he is. He's actually not beautiful Trent who's slim and single and in his 20s. He's a guy who's in his early 30s who's hitting midlife crisis mode, who's got a family and who's got all that anxiety and jitteriness and hilarity that comes with all the Vince Vaughn stuff in the 2000s. But there's like a little bit of a, you know, weird sadness. And also he's like clearly a comedy star. He tried so hard in that period in the late 90s, just like Favreau, you know, they really wanted to be taken seriously and they wanted to be serious yeah. movie stars. And that actually wasn't what they were best cut out for. You know, Vince Vaughn. What was that J-Lo movie he was in? The Cell? The Cell, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Vince Vaughn, he, he, once he figured out, don't play Double Down Trent again, but play the guy who used to be Double Down Trent eight years ago and is trying to hold on to that fun part, but it isn't totally there anymore. Then it took off for him. He also had a really good Aniston relationship that was timely. When she broke up with Brad Pitt, they did that movie, The Breakup, which I don't even really like that much, but it seemed like that celebrity relationship made him ascend to a whole other level. I think when you go back and watch this, especially in comparison to like some of the other indie films from right around this era, like Kicking and Screaming, and even like some of the Kevin Smith stuff, especially Clerks. Yeah. When you watch Swingers, it's so big. Like all the gestures are so movie star big. Like, and even now, especially I was watching some of these scenes and I was like, man, they're really almost hamming it up. Like there's almost like, it's almost like yeah. over the top, but you realize that's the difference between, and I don't mean to make this sound unfair, but it's the difference between like Vince Vaughn and like Chris Eigeman or something. It's like having that kind of like, I can fill this whole screen with my shit here. Like my bit is like, so mainstream it's just dying to get out of here and it's not like cloistered and kind of like you know some the people who get this joke are gonna love this joke like they hit beautiful babies and double down and all the jokes in this they're like did you get that i'm slamming the button on it and it's i guess it almost feels like it was destined to be this successful yeah the, the whole like I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everybody's really hoping makes it happen. You know, like he's really going for it in a way that a lot of those 90s indie movies were like not necessarily subtle, but they were cool. They were laid back. They were kind of yeah. like dispossessed of their of what they were going for. And these guys were, you know, they were influenced by mainstream movies. Like look at the look at what kind of director Favreau turned out to be. He's got a lot more in common with Steven Spielberg than he does, 
I don't know, Spike Lee or Quentin Tarantino, you know, he's a he's a mainstream guy in this movie, even though it feels very intimate and very personal. It's pretty mainstream. It's pretty accessible. It's a monster performance by Vince Vaughn. He he owns every scene he's in. You would have bought all the Vince Vaughn stock in the world after you finished watching this movie. Like, oh, that guy's clearly going to be a major, major star. And it's one of the most memorable characters. It's really a distinct this is a one-of-a-kind, I can't even compare this character to any other character I've seen in a movie. What's interesting, he doesn't get nominated for an Oscar, obviously. But I think if we redid the Oscars, which we're going to have to redo every year of the Oscars if we don't have sports, if all the sports <laughs> falls through over the next six months, get ready for me and Sean just redrafting every Oscars. Um, here were the best supporting actors. Do you know who won in 1996? Uh... That's English patient year. Cuba Gooding Jr. for Jerry Maguire. Oh, nice. Nice. Our other nominees, William H. Macy in Fargo. I'm good with that one. Banger. Edward Norton, Primal Fear. Banger. Some dude from Shine. Uh, Armin Mueller-Stahl. Yeah. And uh, James Woods in Ghost of Mississippi. I'm positive Vince Vaughn could have taken that spot. The James Woods spot. They could have given it to him. Do you remember James Woods in that movie wearing like five pounds of latex makeup? To yeah. Play Byron De La Beckwith, like 85 years old. It's terrible. That's a classic old guys voting for the Oscars. Yeah. Old white guys like, oh man, I see James Woods. Man, <laughs> that was all also, that makeup. Like, Premier Magazine was also like clear out for Woods. <laughs> uh, so I wrote, uh, I wrote this in 03 about why I thought this movie was going to last. Reason number one, captured struggling actors in LA, the surreal scene in Hollywood, and everything you ever loved about Vegas. I think that still that still stands. Number two, nailed the quote, guy in his mid-20s who gets totally obliterated by a girlfriend and can't move on phenomenon, as well as the subtle dynamics of the male bonding experience. I think that holds too. And if anything, I think this is one of this signature, I can't get over this breakup movies. That's probably happened, right? I mean, it's basically the the real theme in this movie is this guy can't get over his girlfriend, but his best relationship in his life is Vince Vaughn. And yeah, it's, it's like he's gonna, there's gonna be another Lorraine, there's gonna be more Lorraines, but Trent's like his guy. That's the relationship that really matters. And he kind of he kind of realizes that as the movie went along. And then uh the other thing that held up or didn't hold up, launched a retro swing craze. I think that died. And a handful of quotes that seeped into our everyday vernacular even years later. Most of those died. I still think Vegas, Vegas, baby, Vegas had a long shelf life. The Vegas is no longer cool. But I, I think if you think about the 2000s and the Vegas renaissance that happened, that really started, you know, 98, 99 range and then became popularized in the 2000s. Swingers was one of the things that kind of launched it. I think those Vegas scenes were really important. It's Sean, funny, you though. love Vegas. I do. And I'm sure like subconsciously I was convinced that I should I should go there all the time and try to be cool and order a scotch from watching this movie. But the point of the scenes is not that Vegas is cool because Vegas is not cool. Like these yeah. scenes take place in the Fremont. You know, the, this isn't like the Caesars where you're walking the floor and you're, right. you know, a, a titan of power and wealth. Like these guys are losers. They're broke, like you said. 
they don't know how to gamble at all. Like that's one of the most painful scenes in the movie is when he sits <laughs> down at so the $100 good. table. Fetus, do you actually think that that blackjack scene is more painful than the Nikki answering machine scene? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, th- this is an underrated cringe comedy Hall of Famer. Like there's a couple yeah. of moments where you're just, your skin is peeling off your body as you're watching Mike fuck things <laughs> up. But um, I, that's the thing is like, they're, make, they're kind of making fun of the idea of the high roller of like the original Ocean's Eleven Rat Pack thing. They, they really like look up to those guys and they, they love that lifestyle, but like they're not even cl- they're not even one one thousandth of where those guys were. And Vegas, likewise, was like, as you said, Bill, it was kind of on the it was on the downside. It was on the backside of being cool at all. It was for old people. We used to stay 95, 96, 97. We would stay at Treasure Island, which was a Cheap step date. up from the casino they went to, but still pretty beaten up. That's on the strip though, right? Yeah. And then I remember in 98 or 99. We upgraded to Mandalay Bay, which was new at that point. And um, and that was like, oh, yeah, we're fucking, we're living life now. We're at the fucking Mandalay. <laughs> Joey Bishop over here. <laughs> but, you know, we were staying four guys to a room, the whole thing. I remember I wrote about Vegas for the first time in March of 99 for my old website. I wrote about my whole weekend in Vegas. I just did like a retroactive running diary of it. And I had no idea if one person was going to like it. Because that that's, you just didn't know. We didn't, the internet wasn't in the shape, you know, for three, four more years. And it was like, all right, I'm just going to write this. There's a lot of funny things that happened. I feel like people might like this. And it was the most popular thing I wrote in the first two years. Like that it got passed around the whole thing. And that was when I think we fully realized, oh shit, Vegas. And we had been going there for March Madness and uh, and March Madness was still underground. And then something shifted, I'm going to say early 2000s, where that first weekend of March Madness became just a madhouse. When did And then Oceans Vegas became Vegas. Oceans was uh, early 2000s. Oh, one, oh two, yeah. yeah. I think, um, I wonder, Bill, like, if it's it was probably for a few reasons. One, like sports betting becoming a bigger part of the experience there. The yes. casinos and the strip getting really built up at the same time. And it also being like weirdly kind of cheap, you know, like it actually wasn't that expensive to go there relative to other like vacations or bachelor yeah. parties or like it was very conquerable in a way that I think made it easy for people to go there, even though it seemed kind of glamorous from afar. Like the version of Vegas that I go to now is, you know, me being a fucking weirdo and like gambling alone and not talking to anybody and like quietly getting drunk. Like it's, I'm not like going to Tao and then, you know, picking up cocktail waitresses. This is, this feels like it's almost happening in a different city and it, it is literally happening in a different century. Yeah. I mean, for me, Vegas in the late nineties was just playing blackjack at the same table for 12 hours and then 20 years. Oh, wait, I, that's still what I do. Forget, <laughs> forget my point. Uh, so, Favreau said about the less than $5 million in box office, he said it wasn't until years later that it built momentum on video, became part of the culture and the language that is, then it became what it is now. Lyman, Doug Lyman said, uh, I got a call from somebody at Buena Vista Home Video who said, Miramax screwed up. Your movie is way too good to disappear like that. We want to give it a huge push on home video, which is what happened. Not only did they flood the blockbusters with it, but they did, remember those... Uh, those stand-up poster things they would have in Blockbuster. Yeah. They had that they had swingers thing with Vince yeah. Vaughn holding the drink out. And you would walk into Blockbuster and you would see it. And they kind of single-handedly turned it into a thing. I remember when I was living uh, with the best man in my wedding, Jeff Gallo, 
we were living in Charlestown. We had a blockbuster near us and they had a Halloween stand-up poster thing. And he told the guy, when you, when it's time to replace this with a different movie, here's my number. We want to take this for our house. <laughs> One day we got the, the phone rang. He answered. He's like, what? And he just ran out of the house. And I didn't know what happened. I thought like he, like something terrible. And he came back lugging this fucking Halloween Michael Myers thing. But yeah, that Vince Vaughn thing. Um, if we ever have a Ringer Podcast Network studio again, I would love to find that on eBay because that was an iconic thing. What do you think Roger Ebert thought of this movie? I bet he liked it. I think I, I think he liked it. Three out of four stars. Raj. Yep. It's not a terribly Double original. Double down, Raj. Raj wrote, it's not a terribly original idea, yet the movie is sweet, funny, and observant. Not a terribly original idea. Fuck off, Raj. <laughs> this movie was totally original. What what movie did this steal from? I, I feel like this was a complete original. Well, I, I mean, I think like the Brothers McMullen just came out before this. There was this feeling like there were a lot of movies about a bunch of guys hanging out and trying to do something cool with their lives. You know, like... um. What's the movie that you, Chris, you always talk about one of those like early 90s movies, not amongst Sleep friends, with there was me? another one. Not Sleep, Sleep with, with me. me, though that is one too. Bodies Rest in Motion? Bodies Rest in Motion. Yeah, like there were there were a bunch of movies like that that all kind of looked the same where like four white guys were like holding a oh, martini yeah. glass on the cover and you're like, what is this? But Swingers itself just had like so much more character and so much more personality and it was very sincere without being hokey. And I feel like that's why it cut through. It's funny how Swingers and Kicking and Screaming are the two movies from this era that have aged by far the best, like by far. And they both had really awesome directors yes. at the helm. Yeah. I think you watch Clerks now and it almost see you you can feel how cheap the budget was for that and it basically feels like a home movie. It, this isn't like Sicario, but it is like you're like I cannot believe how good this looks considering the fact that Doug Wyman was using spare film from other companies like used right. rolls of film like even this stuff with like when they're coming back from vegas and they're sitting outside of the the sign that says 278 miles to los angeles like this is like a hollywood movie and they're they're gorilla shooting that while if you read the great Lenoral history like while someone's about to arrest them right they had no permits yeah they finished filming it. They were wrapping up like the exterior shots and the cops showed up and were like, where are your permits? And uh, they did yeah. one, one other really smart thing to class it up, which is they spent a shitload of money on music. You know, mm -hmm. the music in this movie, which is such a huge part of it. Part of it is, you know, that swing revival stuff and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. But mostly to me, it's like, you know, there's just like all time classic, like Tony Bennett, Dean Martin songs on, on the soundtrack. And then you have all this 70s funk music that plays in the middle of the movie when they're traveling from party to party and like pick up the pieces is in here and um, the King Floyd song like they're all these like really honestly like huge number one hit style songs in the movie which feels so is such an amazing contrast to this like little dingy shot on a 35 millimeter documentary camera movie that it makes you feel like you're you're not just watching somebody that something that somebody made in their backyard you're you're watching a Hollywood movie. People always want to know what the, what the DVDs are, DVDs are behind Sean, and in fact, they are all Big Bad Voodoo Daddy bootleg live yeah, concerts. Yeah, that, I have the total you know. collection. Yeah, <laughs> and Squirrel Nut Zippers too. Yeah. If you've learned anything from the rewatchables over the years, people listening, when you're making a cheap movie, spend most of your budget on the music. It's usually the best. Like even remember we did the Cruel Intentions one, and they spent like twenty percent of the budget on what was that closing song? The uh, 
that that sampled the Rolling Stones? The Verve. The Verve. Yeah, Bittersweet Symphony. Symphony. Yeah. yeah. When when uh, the tables turn on Sarah Michelle Gellar and it costs like a million bucks or something and they didn't have the budget <laughs> and they're like, fuck it. And that song ended up making the ending. Uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to do the categories. Hey, don't you think some once in a blue moon moment should happen more than once in a blue moon? Like getting together with your friends. Last week, my buddy Jacko, he turned 50 and a bunch of us got on a big Zoom and we had a nice little drink little drink, and celebrated him and talked for an hour and caught up on stuff. That's the kind of stuff that should not happen once in a blue moon. Blue moon is on a mission to celebrate and inspire more of those moments by taking a twist on the traditional Belgian wit. Blue moon created during the 1995 baseball season at the Sandlot Brewery at Coors Field in Denver, Colorado. Their founder and blue master was inspired by the flavorful Belgian wits he enjoyed while studying brewing in Brussels. Why the name blue moon? Because if someone was tasting the beer, they said a beer this good only comes around once in a blue moon. My personal experience with Blue Moon, I like to have a bunch of different beers in the fridge. And one of the staples is Blue Moon. Because I've noticed if you put Blue Moon in the fridge and you offer somebody a beer who's over and you tell them what they have, there's a whole class of persons like Blue Moon and they just, that's it. And the Blue Moons always go fast. The next time you're out with friends or just enjoying a night in, reach for a Blue Moon. It's the beer you can enjoy every day. You can have Blue Moon delivered by going to get.bluemoonbeer.com and finding delivery options near you. Blue Moon, reach for the moon, celebrate responsibly. Blue Moon Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, Ale. Back to the pod. All right, before we do the category, Sean has an important question. We talked about this a little bit on the Ferris pod too, but Bill, were you a Trent or a, or a Mike? <laughs> You want me to give my mics? You want to give my mic thoughts now? Sure. You gonna answer my I question think, though? I think I had points in my life where I was a mic and other points where I was a tread. Okay. Given your hostility to uh Troy from Reality Bites <laughs> and and Kevin from St. Elmo's Fire, I I, yeah. I regret to inform you that you are a Trent. <laughs> <laughs> um I'm going to save my Mikey thoughts because I have a whole section near the end on, on Mikey. Me too. Categories. I tried to narrow this down because, I mean, honestly, the whole movie's rewatchable. I, well, I it's also a this. real flow movie. So you could be like this 25-minute section or this 25-minute section. So the drive to Vegas fucking kills me when he's kind of... He talks him into going, and then all of a sudden he's in the front seat. He's in a suit. He's counting money. And he's, they're screaming Vegas. He's like, you got to put a suit on. Hold the wheel. He's putting a suit on. They're screaming Vegas. Well, what the hell are you wearing? I thought you said we're going to wear suits. Oh, my God. you got to stop worrying about us. Christ. Come on, man. It's a, if you're wearing a suit and you look like you gamble a lot, they give you free shit. It's in the back, all right? I'll put it on when we get there. Uh-uh. No way. No, turn around. I'm going home. I'm going. You got to show up wearing that suit. Otherwise, all right already. Okay? I'll put my suit on. Grab the wheel. Hold it steady. I'm telling you, this is how you do it. I know. But I'm watching you when you drive up. Fine. I'm you, that's Fine. how it works. It can work. I'm serious. We're gonna give Daddy the Rain Man suite. You dig that? We're going to Vegas, Mike. Vegas! Vegas. You think we get there by midnight? Money, we're gonna be up 500 by midnight. Yeah, <laughs> Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! Uh, and then the next cut is them just driving sadly along the highway, and they're and it's just like, wow, that was a good idea two hours ago. All of that 
kill it. I mean, honestly, you could go from there to they hit the strip. They're in the convertible. He tips the valet. They go play blackjack because the next rewatchable scene is the the whole blackjack scene is amazing. Got an 11. You always double down on 11. I know, but it's $200. It's blood money. You might get that double down. I can't double down it. Mike, if you don't look like you know what you're doing, you're going to shut up. I can't. You know what you're doing. Mike, I'm telling you, if you don't look like you know what you're doing, I think I love all blackjack scenes, but. um. But that, and then ending with the, <laughs> Mikey's devastated and Trent does the, you're a big winner. I'm going to ask you a simple question. I want you to listen to me. Who's the big winner here tonight at the casino, huh? <laughs> Mikey, that's who. Mikey's the big winner. Mikey wins. <laughs> Mikey wins. Look at me. Look at me. Your money. You know what else? You're a big winner tonight. I want to leave. You're a big winner. I'm going to ask you a simple question. I want you to listen to me. Who's the big winner here tonight at the casino? Huh? Mikey, that's oh, who. Mikey's the big winner. Mikey wins. Fucking asshole. Oh, I'm fine. I'm an asshole, but you know what? You're the big winner tonight. That whole 11-minute stretch, yeah. I think, is you could probably team together. So, um, And then they go get breakfast. And then the next scene with the, I'll have the pancakes of the Age of Enlightenment. <laughs> and she does the hang on Voltaire. Like, it's just fucking humming for 15 solid minutes. Um, you also, in, in that whole section, you get... Um, what does he say? I'm gonna pull a Fredo. Yeah, two cocktails for a Fredo. <laughs> I look the other thing. They go. They try to pretend they know how to gamble. They get at the table. Get, he the way he gives the money is perfect. Like that's total like amateur move. Like counting the money before you give it to him. Everyone knows the dealer counts the money. And then the three black chips back. The way they're staring at it. <laughs> and then. When he actually loses the double down, which you could see coming from a mile away, and just the looks on their face. When <laughs> it's like 21, and it just goes to Favreau. He's got that crazed look on his face. All of that is just, every piece of that is magnificent. But, um, but is that supposed to tell us that th this is Mike's first trip to Vegas? <laughs> like, he doesn't know how to gamble at all. I think these guys are just kind of secretly losers, even though they carry themselves off as not losers. Like Trent, who's supposed to be this amazing worldly guy, has no idea how to gamble. It's incredible. He's he's basically like the only thing he knows is you got to double down or 11. That's his only move. Uh, the next one is the par three at Los Feliz. You notice I didn't mention her once today. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. Oh yeah, why? Uh, it's kind of like not talking to your pitcher in the middle of a no-hitter. What, what do you mean? Like you didn't want to jinx it? Kinda. I don't talk about it that much. <laughs> I, I didn't mention her once today. Ten to pin. The only reason I mentioned her at all was to tell you I'm not going to talk about her anymore. I thought you'd appreciate I that. I do. I do. Good for you, Mikey. Get there. Play it out. I decided I'm going to get back out there. Get there fucking kills me. Get there. <laughs> 150 <laughs> times later, it's still funny. The, the putt's like six feet short. Get there. Um... <laughs> We shot a thing there last year with uh with Scarface for for Callaway with Scarface and House and um it's just so much fun to drive the th the place looks exactly the same I mean I don't know how long it's looked like that but it has they to be what, not, sixty like, years uh, in the at least the from the course side like I think the the sort of little cafe they have there but the guy who sits in the little booth and gives you like your scorecard who and just smokes cools all day has right. been there since Trent or since Rob and Mike were there. 
the sign's been there. The the course is exactly the same. It also captures the whole we're these struggling actors who seem like we should have something to do, but we actually have nothing to do. Let's go play a par nine for three hours because what else am I going to do all day? I'll just sit in my, uh, my house and play video games. They're, they're also so. still using the same um, fryolator at the restaurant that they were using back then if you uh, want to get some fish and chips or mm. chicken fingers. Also, yeah. I love, this is very identifiable, I'm sure at least for Chris and I, like opening the round at the Los Feliz par three with an eight or a nine, you know, like that's... <laughs> Counting, <laughs> counting, counting the recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Good good Ron Livingston too. Does the uh kind of not kind of like not talking to your pitcher doing a no-hitter, throws that line out. Solid. Um next rewatchable scene. Dare I say the greatest video game scene in the history of movies. God, this is such bullshit, man. This is bullshit. The kings suck in this game. We should play another team. I took the Kings to the cup. Yeah, against the computer with the offsides. They're off. a finesse team. Bro. They're a fucking bitch team. Score! Oh! Bitch! What a fucking bitch! Watch out, no, motherfucker. Do not fucking really? hit my elbow. It's not even so much me as it's Ronick. He's good. Oh, is that right? First video game scene ever in a movie, as no. far as I know. No. No. Last Starfighter? Yeah. The wizard, man. No, I'm saying like dudes playing Madden or NHL or PGA oh. or one of those. Like, right. It's never been seamlessly integrated in a movie like this. They picked, um, you know, there was that heyday of NHL. This was the 93, but 93, 94, 95 were like the glory years of that game. So they have one of those. Um, Ronick is really essential that they picked him because Ronick was way too good in that game for a couple years. I don't know if the guys who made it were a Blackhawk fan or whatever, but the fact Vaughn's that- a Blackhawks fan. Vaughn's a huge Blackhawks fan. Right. And Baronic was a god in that game, and they just kind of double. And he's scoring goals over and over again with Ronick. But and Bill, then, Bill, the Kings are a finesse team, <laughs> right? <laughs> Took the Kings to the cup is great, but then Took- him making Gretzky's head bleed is so fucking funny, and him getting mad. But then it has that other piece of it where the delivery guy comes in and they start fucking with Mikey because he's taking the order. It's like Mikey, is he cute? Is he cute? Have him come in, and they do that whole thing, and all of it is just. It's just lights out. Tire scene. Yeah. I, uh, I, <laughs> I remember wanting to play more video games because they were playing video games in the movie, which, and I was already playing a lot of video games at that time in my life. So it's pretty, it's pretty influential. I, I sadly deeply identify with Sue in that scene because as an only child, I yeah. would frequently like go undefeated and take the flyers to the cup in those games yeah. <laughs> like, against the computer. And then as soon as I had to play a friend and they would decimate me, I'd be like, the fucking controller's broken and just start right. throwing shit. <laughs> I gave you the good controller because you came over, but this is bullshit. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the other thing is they couldn't figure out how to make Gretzky's head bleed. And when they're editing the movie, this is from the Grantland oral history, they had to have uh, Vince Vaughn actually come over and just repeatedly try to make Gretzky's head bleed until they finally were able to capture it. But it was actually really hard to do that to somebody in that game. So they pulled that off. Tough. I think Wayne Gretzky is a loser in this movie for a lot of different ways. The Kings get disparaged. He gets knocked out. All that stuff. Um, the, uh, the next one I have is the whole um, Heather Graham scene. Which, first of all, I mean, Heather Graham catching her at a perfect time. The whole him trying to suck it up and 
pull off his whole try, finally try to take the lessons of Trent and talk to a woman successfully. <laughs> and then they go dance. She basically makes them dance. And then they have this swing dance moment and they keep cutting to Trent and Sue and Trent's like crying. He's so happy. <laughs> uh, that's, that's just really good stuff. Plus uh, big bad voodoo daddy who they kind of just were like, Hey, do you guys want to be in this movie? Those guys were like, sure. And they end up like being in a Super Bowl halftime show a couple years later. And then uh, my other one is the late night diner scene with the uh, our little boys all grown up tonight, Trent jumping on the table. Apparently that was ad-libbed when he jumped on the table. Uh, any other rewatchable scenes for you guys? I think the whole Nikki run, meeting Nikki at the bar, then getting the number, pretending to rip the number, and then going back to the apartment and calling Nikki <laughs> 10 times. It's, it's like it's painful to watch. Like I said, it hurts to watch Mikey fuck that up so badly. but. It's also like, it's just so amazingly well done. Still so effective. You still feel for the guy every time. Love that scene. God, I get get sweats just watching that scene. Even you hearing you describe it makes me uncomfortable. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Hi, uh, Nikki. This is Mike again. I I just called because it sounded like your your machine might have cut me off when I, when I, uh, before I finished leaving my number. Anyway, uh, and you know, and also, um, sorry to call so late, but you were still at the Dresden when I left, so I knew I'd get your machine. Anyhow, uh, uh, my number is two one. I watched this movie with my daughter, who had never seen it, and she actually, like, I gotta say, from an attention span standpoint, you know, because she's looking at TikTok every time we watch anything, and the amount of time she actually looks up at the TV versus back at her phone. Usually it's 50-50. This was like about 80-20. She was watching the movie. That answer machine message, she was like, what is he doing? Why does he keep calling? Like she, she was just Does so your daughter confused. know what an answering machine is? No, I had to explain it to her. I was like, back then, they used to have answer machines. Uh, any other uh, rewatchable scenes? Um, I mean, I, I, you know, like I think maybe just the the bouncing from... The hit the party to the, party, the party to party to party to going to the dress anyway. and seeing Marty and Elaine, you know, like the conversations that you have with people about like didn't get the pilot and it was a piece of shit anyway. You know, all that stuff is really great, too. That also felt like I was getting like a little window into a world I didn't know anything about. Yeah, I, I, the whole movie's rewatchable. I for me, it's the video game scene is my favorite. If that's yes, on, video, just video game scene. Yes. Uh, what's age the best? Great opening credits. We mentioned I love the pictures of L.A. I like how they did it. The careers of Vaughn and Favreau, which again, as as we said near the top, you maybe wouldn't have said that in 03. You would have said, oh man, these guys, this movie, like, you know, they hit a grand slam out of the gate. I wish they could recap. And then I was like, all right, well, they definitely did that. Um, the this place is dead anyway guy, he gets that line off twice, Alex Desert. Yeah. Um it's great. If both times he says it, the place isn't dead at all. It's actually like what? It's just nobody's paying attention back. to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Vegas, baby, Vegas. First time I'd heard it. I stole it liberally from many columns. I, uh, they do a great job of establishing what a loser Mikey is. And it's really funny with the, with just like subtle shit like, uh, Lisa works at the MGM Grand. She's a Dorothy. Yep, I'm a Dorothy. And then Favreau goes, well, we're not in Kansas anymore. And there's just dead silence. So what do you guys do? I'm a comedian. Like he, He's the least funny guy on the planet. There's nothing funny about him at all. And it's it's funny how that keeps happening. You mentioned the uh, 
I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, blah, blah, blah. Um, Marty and Elaine. It's funny. You go, you go to the Dresden, you see them, which I did a couple times, early 2000s, and then even later, like late 2000s. And they look exactly the same. They might be alien life forms. I'm not, I'm not sure they're human. They don't seem to age. They're, they've been the same age for 30 years. I don't totally understand it. I saw them perform last fall. They were still doing their thing. Same shit. They look exactly the same. Did you just go to the Dresden or were you going yeah. to see Marty and Elaine? No, 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 no. A, 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 an acquaintance was like, let's go get a drink. I'll meet you at the Dresden. And we had a drink. And like frequently when you go to a bar, all of a sudden it's two hours later and it was like the nine o'clock time. And they just came on and they just started playing in the middle of the week at night. They're like in their 80s. It's crazy. So does that mean they were in their 50s in this movie? Because they seem like so. they're in the 70s in this movie. I think they're in their 80s. I think they're in their hundreds now. <laughs> um, another what's aged the best, the whole con- the pre-Uber concept of just everybody in their own car going almost like a like a convoy from party to party because that's really what LA was like until about 2014-15. Any other what's aged the best for you guys? Hanging out in diners. Oh, diner hangouts. Which I, I, I feel like I don't do enough of. Obviously, I haven't done... Uh, any of since since this all started but is like a top five location to hang out oh Di- yeah diners you know like but is there anything better than like intermittently getting a coffee cup filled with like okay coffee i miss i miss getting coffee at like 10 p.m and that being okay <laughs> You know, like I've aged out of that time in my life when I could get a giant plate of pancakes yeah. at one o'clock in the morning and and have a cup of coffee to just. I'll have the toucan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do miss that. That's, that's aged well, but also poorly in my life. Sure. Also, though, those kind of diners are harder to come by than maybe you give. Like when I lived in Charlestown for like ten years, we just didn't have a diner like that. But when I was in college, we used to drive to um, the Heritage which was about a 10 minute drive from Holy Cross. And we would just go there and we would get breakfast, talk about the night before, hang out. They had an omelet called the Heritage. Jacko would always order the Heritage. We would always <laughs> laugh. It was like, oh, the Heritage. Um, but it was like, we would just go to this diner and hang out for two and a half hours and eat breakfast and drink coffee. And, and there's a bunch of those in LA. There was even a, there's one near our office. That, called Swing? You well, know, yeah. There, 101 Diner. Yeah, the 101 Diner is just like kind of up the street from where our offices are and like... Yeah, that's, that's the diner in the movie. Franklin. Yeah, and that's the diner yeah. in, the, in the movie. I, I mean, on, on Long Island, like diners are a lifestyle. Yeah. There's yeah. a diner on every corner on Long Island. Jersey Shore, same thing, like yeah. Cape. Um, I think diners took a have taken a big hit with COVID, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. That's I know in LA, business. a lot of them have gone down. Tough one. Uh, and the music we mentioned, which is age really nicely. I, I would say though, what's age the best is just the Von Favreau dynamic and how that evolved over the years where, mm-hmm. you know, these guys have now had 25 year careers and it's pretty cool to see them in this movie at an early stage. I, I think Doug Lyman too. I mean, yeah. Doug Lyman really is like one of the 10 or 12 most successful directors of the last 30 years in terms of the, just the number of movies he's made. I mean, obviously the way he makes movies, Chris and I talked about it on the edge of tomorrow podcast, but it's a pretty crazy style and you can even see in the, in the Grand Lenoral history, like the risks that he took and the way that he pushed the limits with things. 
Um, but he's just he had he's able to capture an energy on screen. He's cl- clearly so good with actors and gets actors so excited about doing the stuff this work. Um, I don't know. He's like he's he's done really well. Also, they they got Ron Livingston and Heather Graham at pretty great times right before yeah. they started to get real famous. True, and Ron Livingston. This is basically who he is in every movie. <laughs> he's really likable in this, though. He is. And uh, I think he does a good job. He's kind of almost a moral conscience of the movie in a lot of ways. And Heather Graham, you know, she does this and Boogie Nights basically within six months of each other. What's age the worst? The Club. The Club on Cars. Remember? Remember? The Club had a whole run there for 10 years. I haven't seen a club in forever, but that was like a real thing in the cities in the in the 90s. Yeah, did people My just daughter give, was like, what is that? that? I guess yeah, G- I don't know what happened. I think OnStar and GPS and all that stuff probably makes the club kind of like if you've stolen the car. But yeah, I used to always... I, I remember when I was like in high school and college, I, I had like a, a Ford Tempo and then a Toyota Corolla, my mom's Toyota Corolla. And even the... And they were pretty bad cars. And I would still put the club on, but like yeah. I would never lock the club. It was always ornamental. So I'd be like... If someone breaks the window, because even though they seem the club, they can have the car, but I'm right. going to leave the club on. You know, I'm just not going to lock it so that I have to unlock it when I get get up in the car. My daughter was confused by the club. I was like, eh, 25 years ago, cars didn't have alarms. You know, it was just kind of what we had to do. Um, answer machines. Unfortunately, it's aged the worst. They don't exist anymore. But don't get mad at me. The Reservoir Dogs homage has aged the worst because that movie is now 29 years old. And I think if you're like under 30, there's a chance you might not get it at all. It was so funny in 1996, 97. You're like, oh, this is great. Great, great job making fun of Reservoir Dogs. And same thing for the uh, Goodfellas walking through the kitchen homage. Both of those have aged aged. The worst only because as the years pass, I think it's harder for people to get the joke. I think there's two other. So those two choices, which are super self-conscious commentary on movies. And then there's two other interesting choices that they make. The one is at the beginning of the movie when the answering machine talks back to Mike. Yeah. Where you're like, what kind of a movie is this? Like, is this? I know, be like- I, this that's an age the worst for me. Yeah, I wish I, they hadn't done that. And then the other one, which I think is like more subtle but is basically the same kind of like whimsical flourish is when he looks over at Lorraine and he sees her and she, then she's a bunny and he sees the bunny and then he looks back and then it's Lorraine again. And it's because of the, you know, the bear and the bunny speech that, that Trent gives and the movie otherwise is this like not hyper real necessarily, but very intimate and very like normal seeming kind of life that these guys are living. And it has these three or four little moments that kind of stick out now and have not don't really work as well in the movie. I think. I have just a personal what's age the worst having been broke in Vegas and gambling. The $300 chips, you're you're out of there. I, I don't care how much of your manhood is at stake. There's just no fucking way. The, those stakes are too big. You're getting out. You're like, oh man, I didn't, you're just taking the chips. You're going to the table that has the bearded guy and the old lady. That's just <laughs> the old lady how it's playing out. hitting on 17. <laughs> yeah, because you just drove... Four and a half, five hours. I also think for another what's age the worst, just that drive to Vegas in general. They're leaving at night. I have they a make huge it seem like that. it's a crisp drive. In real life, they're getting there. It's seven hour drive. They're getting there at like two in the morning. Okay. So it's dark when Trent calls Mike. Right. Yeah. And he's like, We gotta go. We gotta go to Vegas. 
So let's say it's like seven or eight o'clock when Trent calls Mike, right? Yeah, they're not there till two. He says they're going to get there at midnight. They obviously don't get there at midnight. They meet the girls at the Bamboo Lounge at 6 a.m., right? And then doesn't Trent have like a like a audition at 9 a.m.? Like they, I guess he blows off that audition, but yeah, like they get to Vegas at like one or two in the morning, right? Yeah, because you figure they start gambling at two. That lasts maybe two hours, and then they have to kill two hours until they go meet the girls. So they go get breakfast. I, I think that part lines up, but I don't. I think that's a six seven hour drive. Yeah, Fantasy's like I can do it in four. <laughs> I would do it. I would do it in three fifteen. <laughs> that's my world record for Vegas, LA to Vegas, three fifteen. Three fifteen. Yeah. Doing no one hundred and five the whole time. Yeah, Stop I've done it. it. No, you want to challenge? Me he's not build. driving. Yeah, no. First of all, don't. And second Sunday of all, morning drag racing. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Casting what ifs. Only have a couple. Lyman said in the Great Literal History that Jason Priestley wanted to play Vince Big for a little you. bit there. And uh, and if he had signed on, they could have raised a million and a half dollars, gotten the movie made. And then Livingston said Vince was the last person that got the okay to be in the movie. They really wanted somebody they could stick on the poster. Look, I love Priestley. 90210, one of my favorite shows ever. He could not have been Vince. That, that's a disaster. I think Thank Depp, God that didn't happen. They asked, or like this, like distributors or money people wanted Depp too, to play Trent. And Favreau really wanted to direct and was pushing hard to direct, pushing hard, pushing hard. They were smart enough, much like the Goodwill Hunting guys, smart enough to know that they needed to try to star in the movie. This was going to be their one break. He finally gave up the directing thing became a co-producer, let Lyman do his thing. And then uh, he, he could kind of read between the lines in the post-production editing process. And might they might have butted heads a couple of times. And Lyman's a famously difficult guy, right? Yeah. And you can in that one of the great things in that oral history is you see these sketches that Favreau made of what he saw as the movie. And, you know, they're basically storyboards. And a lot of them are really close to what the movie turned out to be. So he clearly shared that with everybody and he clearly had like a very big vision, not just on the page, but on screen of what the movie was supposed to be. And, you know, this turned out to be two of the biggest, like really power broker directors of the of the last couple of decades. So obviously it wouldn't be surprising if they were they butted heads a little bit, although Favreau has been very diplomatic about this in the past. We did oral histories at Grantland of Boogie Nights and Swingers. I don't know who assigned those, but it might have been me. And uh <laughs> Heather Graham would not be interviewed for either one. We went 0 for 2 with her. I don't know what we did to Heather Graham. She's Just waiting wasn't for the interested Heather- in discussing either one. She's waiting for her own oral history. She wants like the giant, like, you know. I don't know what we did to Heather Graham. You'd think she's Meryl Streep. Best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. So this could go one of two ways. Like Patrick Van Horn as Sue was never in anything else again. He's almost, if you saw him, you'd be like, Sue. Um, <laughs> And Alex Desert as the This Place is Dead Anyway guy. I feel like he's been in other stuff. I just can't name any of them. But I wanted to give it to somebody who had a little more steam. Dina Martin, who we talked about in the Dazed and Confused podcast. It's basically this and Dazed and Confused. And and that was it. But I always really liked her. I always thought she was cute. I always thought she was a good actress. 
had a great nice, voice. really likable vibe, great voice. I don't know why more good things didn't happen for her in the 90s. So I, I vote for Dina Martin for this. I like her. Alex Desert uh, is big in PCU. He's I like so, Alex Desert a lot. He's so money in PCU. Yeah, I like him. <laughs> so money. Uh, the Vincent Hanna, give me all you got a word for, for most overacting. I didn't feel like anyone overacted in this movie. Wait, wait, am I missing something? I don't feel like anyone dialed it up. I'm going to give it to uh, the guys that Sue confronts in the parking lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, House of Pain? <laughs> yeah, House of Pain. You want some of this, bitch? Scully? Yeah. Yeah. You know who Scully was? He was in Big oh, Bad Booty Daddy, right? No. No, he's Rio Hackford, Taylor Hackford's Oh, right. That, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taylor Hackford, director of Proof of Life, one of the greatest movies we've ever done in the rewatchables. Married to Helen Mirren, who's a huge fan of the rewatchables, right, Chris? Yeah. No, mm. she she is the last remaining one. <laughs> <laughs> I watched Devil's Advocate last night. Oh, that's I'm a, a fan of man. That's a huge fantasy text. Yeah. Look, My favorite. but don't touch. <laughs> that movie's almost an SNL sketch. It's amazing. <laughs> the accents, Keanu, Keanu Reeves is, I don't know what accent it is, but it comes and goes. And Charlize is like going for an Oscar. She's incredible in that movie. And everybody else is just in an SNL sketch. And she is Meryl Streep. Do you prefer anyway. Devil's Advocate or the movie, the Matthew McConaughey sports betting movie? Two for, two for the money? Yeah, two for the money. That movie's bad. That movie has a lot of problems. Devil's Advocate is perfect. Dion Waiters Award is loaded with nominees. This place is dead anyway, that guy. Marty and Elaine, I think they're eligible. Heather Graham, basically two scenes. Sue, only in like five scenes. Scully, aka House of Pain, <laughs> are nominees. Um, I am I am voting for Heather Graham. She's in the movie for less than 10 minutes and um, is lights out. What do you guys have? It's Heather Graham. Heather Graham and then the on the phone call, like throwing like 90 mile per hour Diane Keaton bits at Favreau on the phone at the end about like, that's Frank mm. Sinatra's birthday, but I don't even know. Am I supposed Hello? to call you? Like, Hello? Hi. Oh, you didn't have to get off the other line. I would have called you back. No, that's okay. I wanted to talk to you. You know, I really could have, could have called you back, but... Anyway, I probably should have waited two days. That's what my friend said. But, God, I sound like such a schoolgirl. It's just that they have this thing, okay? It's the room. It's, it's Sinatra's birthday. It's one of these Hollywood clubs, and, you know, there's no sign. Uh, I don't really understand why, why they don't have any signs. It's just I'm really bad at this. I just want to know if you might want to go with me. I've always been a fan of Brooke Langton. I feel like we're, we've overlooked oh, yeah. Brooke Langton here. You know, Melrose Place. The replacements. She's got a great scene. She's like, looks like the kind of woman you would see sitting alone at a bar like that. You know, you'd think would be approachable, but then she would blow you out of the water. I don't know. I like Brooke Langton. A good enough actress to actually elicit real acting for Manger's shoe in about six Melrose Place episodes. <laughs> she really did her best. Recasting couch. I got to be honest. I didn't have any parts I were to recast. I think they did a really nice job. They crossed the board. I, I'm, I'm good. There's not anybody. We just don't know what happened to Sue. Yeah. What happened to Patrick Van Horn? They 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 don't talk about it. Like one, I think Alex Desaire is like, I see him and we're like, what's up? But like everybody else is like, I've completely lost track of that guy. Yeah, I did some half-ass internet research, which is our next category, trying to find out what happened to him. And there's, I didn't want it. Hmm. 
wasn't wasn't interested in this life. Got okay. out of it. It's weird. So maybe that would be. I mean, if you're recasting it in a way where you'd want another guy on the level of Vaughn and Favreau, maybe maybe Sue is John Hamm. I don't know. We're like, oh, cool, John Hamm is Sue. But I I still like Sue. I think he's good in this movie. How fast internet research? Favreau said. My dad gave me a screenwriting program. I started the script as an exercise to see if I could write a screenplay. Swingers is what came out. It took him two weeks. Livingston said they got Teller around the same time. Favreau and Livingston just became friends. They were the only guy in LA the other guy knew. And then Favreau knew Vince because they were in Rudy together. Vince took Favreau under his ring. Livingston popped along. Adam Scott lived downstairs and they all kind of hung out. Um, they, after they did the script, they would do full cast script readings for potential buyer producers for a year. And they would do it almost like how Jason Reitman does those, uh, where he gets like 12 awesome actors to read some movie script. They would just do this over and over again for people. And uh, Vaughn said, I think they all totally missed the universality of it. A guy dealing with a breakup, coming of age, taking a journey with a group of friends, wanting to meet somebody to love. Um, we mentioned how they spent more money on music in that movie than on the movie. They paid the most for Dean Martin. <laughs> Half a million dollars in music licensing. The movie cost a quarter of a million dollars to make. Uh, Favreau stole your so money from the Spike Lee, Michael Jordan commercials. That party scene was a party scene that they threw and just invited all their friends and didn't really tell them what was going on. But two of the people that were at that party were Adam Scott and Mike White of Chuck and Buck. The Vegas scenes, do you know where they were shot? What casino? Yeah, the exterior is the Stardust, right? Interior was the Glitter Gulch. Ooh. <laughs> oh, man. Tough. I just don't think Gulch ever works. Like as Tough. A, the yeah, Gulch, gulch is always gulch. a bad thing. Favreau taught Heather Graham to swing dance. Favreau said the original script ended with the uh, with the phone call with Heather and Lorraine. Takes the new girl. Camera pulls away into a helicopter shot that we couldn't afford, and that was the end. And then uh, Lyman added the new ending because he thought the movie was really a platonic love story between Mikey and Trent. But they realized last second they didn't have a baby. So they had to go scramble around looking for anybody holding a baby and then convince them to let the baby be in the movie. Uh, movie got rejected by Sundance. They they speed rushed it to get into Sundance and Sundance said, no, Robert Redford, are we sure he's good? <laughs> <laughs> not here, Bill. Not right now. They rented the Fairfax $2 theater that Sean Fennessy would have loved if he lived here in the mid-90s. Yeah, sad. Had a screening with 500 people. They said it was 490 friends, 10 possible buyers, and it crushed. And everybody was trying to buy it, and they sold it to Miramax for $5 million. Then they had the um, premiere up the street from my house at the Vista. They got the Jaws theme music because they sent uh, approval to Spielberg, who saw some of the scenes from it, and was like, who's that with Vince Vaughn and cast him in the uh, Lost World Jurassic Park movie. So that happened. And then uh, the bear monologue, the you're a big bear, all the, like you're PG-13, the whole thing. Apparently, Vince Vaughn really did say that to John Favreau at one point. Cause, and this is autobiograph- 
biographical with Favreau where he left a girl behind and the whole thing. So apparently that speech was somewhat similar to the speech they used in the movie. So there you go. Apex Mountain. Wait, Bill, can that I just tell you that before Chris and I do a podcast, every time I, I give him that speech, <laughs> like a big bear with fangs and claws. You don't know I'll what to like, do with the bunny. I don't know, man. I can't do Pacino this time. <laughs> you know, ever since I left New York, I feel weird about doing Pacino. Where, who would Pacino have been in this movie? Marty? Marty and Elaine? <laughs> what uh, if Pacino was Sue? He could have been House of Pain. <laughs> I need a gun to protect myself. <laughs> Apex Mountain. The Kings uh, of Finesse Team! <laughs> <laughs> Doug Lyman? No. No. I don't know what Doug Lyman's Apex was, but it was I think it's this. Born. Born. Yeah. Well, I don't know which one. Like, how many did he do? He just did the first one. First one, yeah. Oh, he didn't do it. I thought he did another one. All right, no. there you go. Probably Born. Vince Vaughn. Wedding Crashers. Or yeah. old school, yeah. I would say Wedding Crashers for him. John Favreau? We are living in it. And it's been that way for 10 years. Yep. He's like, in charge. Iron Man to Mandalorian. <laughs> I would say it's nice. I Apex. would say it's uh, <laughs> Iron Man because that was Robert Downey as a superhero and John Favreau directing everybody is like, what the fuck is going on here? And then the movie becomes a monster and sets up everything he wants to do after that. Brooke Langton. She's on Melrose Place when this movie comes out. So I'm going to go Apex Mountain for her. Sue, definitely. <laughs> Apex Mountain for Sue. Yeah. Early, fun, underground Vegas. Absolutely. This is Apex Mountain for Vegas before Vegas became commercialized. Hockey video games, yes. Big Voodoo Daddy, I'm going to say playing the Super Bowl halftime show is probably Apex Mountain for them. Yeah, but I would say Swing Revival in general. This is probably Apex. The Derby, yes. The Dresden, yes. That's all I got. Dina Martin. Picking nits. We I, we already did the uh, the Vegas drive. I don't have any other nitpicks, do you? I just have a probably unanswerable question. Okay. Best quote. We mentioned a lot of them. I enjoy having you see Boys in the Hood. Now one of us is going to get shot. What the fuck? You asshole. What did you see Boys in the Hood? Now one of us is going to get shot. You fucking bitch. You ain't going to do anything, guys. Oh, you fucking uh, you wake up every day and it hurts a little bit less and then you wake up one day and it doesn't hurt at all. And the weird thing is it's almost like you missed that pain. Sometimes it still hurts. You know how it is, man. It's like you wake up every day and it hurts a little bit less and then you wake up one day and it doesn't hurt at all. And the funny thing is, is that this is kind of weird, but it's like, it's like you almost miss that pain. It's fucking great. Uh, I'm going to find me two waitresses here. I'm going to pull me a Fredo. <laughs> the Kings are a finesse team. Uh, there's a million quotes in there. Could this be remade as a 10 episode Netflix show? Next category. Please, God, no. Please. Uh, I'm, not as, I'm, I'm not as as allergic, but you would have to find whoever, like, who could be Vince Vaughn? Like, who who is the person no. who is, like, absolutely, like, irrepressible like that? We they They made this show. It's called Entourage. Entourage is the logical sequel to this movie. It's a very good point, Sean. That makes me unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably unanswerable questions. What was the most unrealistic part of the Mikey Lorraine extended scene? That somebody as hot as Heather Graham was sitting by herself at a bar with no guys circling her? 
that both of them instinctively knew how to swing dance at an incredibly <laughs> high level, that she would ask Mikey to dance, that she'd be attracted to Mikey in the first place. What do you have for most un- most uh, unrealistic? I think the swing the swing dancing, like the the duel, like all of a sudden, it's just like you guys might as well be fucking figure skating. Like, what are you talking right. about? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, even at 14, it was. I was like, what the fuck is happening? How do they know how to do this? <laughs> it's pretty choreographed. Like, Mike can't get dressed at all of a sudden. Right, <laughs> right true. Uh, how long did Mikey and Lorraine last? Nine months. I'm going to say six months. I, I'll take the over. I'll, I'll, I'll go a year. I think she meets like Ben Affleck at a bar. The real Ben Affleck. And great, he's got Good Will Hunting coming out. sequel. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's got like a big movie coming out and she just dumps Mike immediately. Redefining swingers. Does Double Down Trent, does he make it as an actor? I was going to ask you this one too. Before we answer that, can I ask you a question about one of Trent's stories? When he's in the trailer with uh, the two gals from, from Las Vegas and he tells the story about going in for the after school spe- special and Vince yeah. one was on after school specials. Was that completely made up story? Or just an embellished story? Uh, I think it was embellished. But there it's was some truth cause in like, it? Yeah, because I think that... Because Favreau, the, the, in the oral history, they talk about how all of the dialogue is on the page, but a lot of the stuff that's on the page is taken from their lives. So I think that that's probably like... The, it was probably a story that was embellished. Yeah, the kid was probably 16 in the after school special. And mm. That's probably how it goes. So did, did Trent make it? I'm going to say no. So what's he doing now? Working at the par three? Yeah, he's Trent waiting tables is, at the 101. No, he's like a bartender diner. back in Chicago. He moved back after like two or three years. That's a bummer. All right, let's do it. Why did anyone want to hang out with Mike? So mine is when was Mike actually fun? Because all those guys sucks. are like, yeah, Mike. Like, like, so he moved out from New York. You're so, you're so money. You're so fun. He's like, Mike sucks. What's fun <laughs> about this dude? He's awful. <laughs> what was the version of Mike that was like a good hang? I'm just going to give you some some Mike tidbits. You had to talk him into going to Vegas. He has no idea how to gamble. He's a professional comedian who's not funny at all in any in any way. There's no hint of a sense of humor from him. He throws his friends under the bus when they're trying to hook up. He's still stuck on a girl from back home who's dating a guy named Pierre and they've been broken up for <laughs> nine months. Uh, he can't golf. <laughs> <laughs> He's an accomplished swing dancer. <laughs> and then at the end, Heather Graham, who's just like, just please take me home. I just want to get over my boyfriend tonight. And he can't even like seal the deal with that. He sucks. I, and I guess the point of this movie is that you still like him anyway, but I, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why Trent wants to hang out with him. If I'm Trent, I'm like not answering the phone when Mike is calling. Like, oh, Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm like, Sue, give me your gun. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is, once again, you guys have proven at the end of a pod that you're just complete monsters. You have no, 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 no. This guy's when going is- through something really hard. He's homesick. He misses his girl. He's trying to make it in the big city. Who hasn't been there? Explain Who can relate when to that? he was fun. Was it yeah. pre-Michelle in college? Like, when do Trent and Mike have their glory days that they are trying to recapture in LA? On the set Listen. of Rudy. We know about this. <laughs> Listen, 
you never in a million years would want to hang around with Cameron from Ferris Bueller or Mike from Swingers. <laughs> you just wouldn't have in real life. These are two people you did not want to hang out with. But yeah, they're great I, movie characters. I want to. I, I want to almost like I want to get divorced just to see how long I could talk about it with fantasy. <laughs> Before I ditch you for good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Sean, I'm really going through it. It's just like, yeah, cool, Chris. It's like the third time we've talked about this. I think it's Ron Livingston who really, who you know, who really eats it in this movie. He's the he's the one who has to carry the weight, the burden of Mike's bullshit. Well, Sean, that leads me to my other probably unanswerable question. Is the most unrealistic thing in Swingers Ron Livingston casually unwrapping a roll of salami for breakfast in that guy's apartment? It's an iconic (laughs) moment. Has anyone love it since 1920s New York City (laughs) and my son eating fucking salami with like, why does he have like a knife that he's just cutting salami with? Like you... You're trying out to be goofy and you eat salami from the roll for breakfast. Like, what are you? One, I've done it. Two, I would do it again in a heartbeat if I had some salami in my home right now. I Actually, should I go to my, should I go to the kitchen and this get the salami that I have bullshit. in the fridge? I have spent more time with you than almost anyone else in my life. Give Over me a the second. last 20 years, you have never eaten salami in front of me unless it was pre-sliced. Wow, he's actually going to get salami. My son uh, eats salami all the time. Does he cut it though, or does he have like the little pre-sliced? No, he does that. He does the pre-sliced salami packs. That whatever you get him in the deli, he loves those. This is quite a bit. Oh, look at this! <laughs> here it is, CR, oh right he- here, Soprasada in your fucking face. I will be eating it, it by hand as soon as we get off this pod. No, I'm going to be cutting it with a knife. Wow, COVID's really wearing a lot of people down. <laughs> Uh, uh, who won the movie? Vaughn. Favreau. Favreau. Make the case for Favreau. If he doesn't do this movie, he might not have a career. And I don't know if that's true for Vince because Vince is such an amazingly charismatic performer. And you can see in the future, like he's able to sustain himself publicly. But Favreau needed to make destiny happen for himself. And he did it by writing this movie and by being monomaniacal about getting it made and doing it with his friends and doing it the way that he thought it should have been done. And look at him now. I mean, he's he's one of the five most important people in Hollywood. You know, he just made the last like truly great thing that everybody loved, The Mandalorian. Like he is he's one of the he's like in a very select 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 echelon of Hollywood power brokers really. And it's because of this movie. Yeah, I just think it's Vaughn cuz he leaps off the screen. Like, it's just like the obvious thing that like where he's operating at like a level of like wattage that is like 10 times the next closest person. It's interesting. I don't know if we've had a conundrum like this with who won the movie. Who won the movie itself is Vaughn. Who wins the movie in a big picture? Yeah. Like long-term success. Long-term way is is easily Favreau because Sean's right. Vince Vaughn is happening anyway. He's He's making it. You know, and what whatever the route would have been, it would have was going to happen. He was too good. He was too charismatic. But yeah, Favreau, three years earlier, was in Rudy going, you're the wild man now! <laughs> and he's 300 pounds screaming for Rudy. And I just don't think it would have happened. And, you know, as an actor, it wasn't, didn't really totally ever happen for him either. You know, he had pretty mixed results there for 10 years. So he was always going to be a behind the scenes guy. Have you ever done a co-winner 
Yeah, we've had co-winners. I, I think there's I think times there's... where we've just argued for three minutes and nobody makes a decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like there's a macro winner and a micro winner, right? Vince yeah. Vaughn's the micro winner and Favreau's the That's good. macro winner. But um, it's amazing this movie came out 24 years ago. It, it doesn't feel like it did. I think there's a lot of movies from the mid-90s that feel like they were made in the mid-90s. This one does not. It's really good. It is... On HBO Max, by the way, if anyone wants yeah. to um, check that out, along with uh, HBO Max, really good library. Incredible. I'm constantly, constantly impressed by the things they have on there. All right. So next week, we're going to do Stand By Me, Stephen King, River Phoenix, Rob Reiner. That's happening. So if you want to watch Stand By Me before then, feel free. See you guys next time. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. 